there is no average advance. Every genre has some kind of norms, but it can just be anything. And when my clients ask me like, oh, how much money are we going to get for this book, Kate? I usually say more than $5,000 and less than $500,000 because Mm -hmm. I don't know. And if I knew, then it would make my job much easier. But (laughs) I don't make those decisions. I don't make the money decisions. So you'll know the money and you'll know how much and your agent will negotiate that for you. And if you're doing it your own, just ask for more money. Just ask for more. Like you're not going to scare them off. Ask. Don't triple it. That's probably too much, but ask for more than you think you'll get because maybe they'll say yes. Hey there, welcome back to Lit Match, a podcast made to help writers find the best literary agent and business partner for their writing career by learning how to blend business with passion. I'm Abigail Perry, a book coach and certified developmental editor, and I'm excited to bring you Kate McKean. She has a wealth of experience agenting. She's 17 plus years in the industry. We are really lucky to hear from Kate today. At the time that I recorded this episode, Kate was actually not accepting queries, but she still generously offered her time and wisdom and said, hey, let's do an interview anyway and come up with something special. And that's something special that we are going to discuss in depth today is the very intimidating topic of book contracts or book publishing contracts. Kate does a fantastic job at demystifying what can feel like a very complicated topic for writers, but a very necessary topic that writers need to understand if they are going to pursue traditional publishing. In case you don't know who Kate McKean is, she is a literary agent at the Howard Moorheim Literary Agency or HMLA, Inc., and she joined in 2006. Kate earned her master's degree in fiction at the University of Southern Mississippi and began her publishing career at the University Press of Florida. She's proud to work with New York Times bestselling authors in a wide variety of genres, including Daniel M. Lavery's Text from Jane Eyre, Madeline Rowe's YA horror series Asylum, and Brittany Gibbons' memoir Fat Girl Walking. In addition to working with clients, Kate is an adjunct professor at New York University And you will see just how great a teacher she is through this conversation. I would like to note that while I recorded this episode when Kate was not accepting queries, I'm excited to share that she is now accepting queries. She is primarily interested in fiction for adults, young adults, and middle grade readers in the areas of contemporary fiction, literary fiction, historical fiction set in the 20th century, LGBTQ issues fantasy, magical realism, and science fiction. In nonfiction for adults or children and teens, Kate represents books by authors with demonstrable platforms in the areas of pop culture, memoir, humor, creativity, and craft. She is also interested in graphic novels and memoirs for all ages. She is not actively looking for children's picture books, poetry, or screenplays. If any of those genres are ones that you are writing, you might want to check out Kate Moore at her website, katemckeen.com, and I will include all that information in the show notes. Without further ado, I'll bring you now Kate McKean. Hi, Kate. Thanks so much for joining me. We have a lot to dig into today. So glad to be here. It's going to be fun. For the topic today, what we have decided to really dig into is going to be contracts. The dreaded contracts. The very contracts. very necessary, but very confusing contracts. One of the main reasons why I think 
people get agents, right? For oh, yeah. one of the many reasons, but definitely how do you navigate those waters? Before we do that, I'd love for listeners, if they don't know who you are, just to understand who you are, why you're here and how you're so awesome, because I think that you're awesome. I, she has this amazing newsletter. If you haven't signed up for it, Agents of Books, you should. She wants to make this industry as comprehensible as possible. And yes, you know, sometimes we think that like there's transparency and what's going on. This world feels mysterious and you break those walls. So I appreciate that. But let us know, Kate, how did you come to be a literary agent in your position and just what does your career path look like? So I always wanted to be a writer. I always knew since I was five years old that I was going to do something with words and books. And obviously when I was, you know, 14, I assumed I would have 15 novels published by the time I was 22 and, you know, all of the dreams and sugar plums that danced in your head. And obviously that didn't happen, but that's still okay. When I was in college, my sister was working in publishing at Oxford University Press and she was like, a little older than me. And she was like, you know, I know you don't want to be a high school English teacher with your English degree from the University of Florida. No shade to high school English teachers. God bless you all. You're fantastic. But she's like, I don't think you want to do that. So why don't you go get an internship at the University Press of Florida where I was going to school? And I was like, you're a genius and awesome. So I'm going to do what you say. And I did. And it was fantastic. It was a your run-of-the-mill internship. You know, I copied and filed things and whatever. But because it was a small university press, I got to be part of any little part of the publishing process I wanted to be. I could sit on a meeting. I could, you know, look at a manuscript, do whatever. And then that turned into a part-time job throughout college. And then after college, a full-time job as an editorial assistant. And I had also applied to grad school for my MFA in fiction writing, which I really wanted to do. And I ended up going after one year of working as an editorial assistant to the University of Southern Mississippi for my MFA. And while I was there, I was super duper popular in my workshops because I would say, why are you writing this? Who is going to buy it? What are you going to do with your life? And that is not what they wanted to talk about in workshops. It, it came from being in publishing for a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit of time and also only a university press. But also at the time, while I was at the University Press of Florida, I was reading a brand new newsletter called Publisher's Lunch. And it had just come out this is a long time ago. And my boss at the press was like, you should read this and just like learn about publishing. And I was like, great. And in that, I learned about literary agents. And I just kind of knew on some level that that was right for me because I had an idea that that it would be fit my outgoing personality. I like to be in charge. I had the idea that I would have more control over my career later down the line. I didn't really want to live in New York my whole life. I had gone to high school in New York. It was not a jam. 20 years later, I am still here. So, you know, we don't know everything when we're 20. And so I had that in the back of my head. And then I went to grad school and I realized I wanted to be a grown up and have a real job. And I could write whenever I wanted to write. And I left grad school early. I graduated early. I packed all my things and I drove to New York City from Mississippi. <laughs> so eventually, Got a job as the assistant seven literary agents who all shared office space. No one should ever do that. It was a lot. Oh, all of the people I worked with were awesome. And eventually I got another job at Distel and Goderich before it was, it's now Distel, Goderich, and Brett. And I worked there for a little while. That did not end up being my home. And I met Howard Morheim through an editor, who Davey Pillai, who is the 
publisher of Tor now. And she was like, go talk to Howard. And I met Howard. And that was 17 years ago. And I've been there ever since. And that's something we were talking about off podcast really quick. I said, have you been at Howard Mor- the Morheim Literary Agency for your career? And you said, yes, <laughs> 17 years. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, yeah. that's a long time, 17 years. So obviously you like it there. What are some things that you really like about your literary agency? Howard, I mean, from, you know, from a, a like, a, this is a good job point of view. Mm-hmm. Howard has always let me do whatever I wanted. He said, yeah, come on, let's go. Let's man, try some stuff. See what you like. See what you're going to do. And he was, he's always been there for mentorship and guidance and saying like, yeah, you don't actually really want to do that. And, <laughs> and all the things that a good mentor and boss does. And I've mm-hmm. had absolute freedom and I've had the freedom to fail and I've had the freedom to, to succeed. And it has just always worked. And I think Howard and I get along personally. We'd have a similar attitude about things, kind of a like, oh, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> you know, kind mm-hmm. of point of view sometimes. And it just has worked. It's just worked. So, and it has the freedom that I wanted in the, like in my job, you know, as like when I was 20 looking at a career, but also what I like about the vibe of our agency is we just sell some books. It's not complicated. We just want to go look for some good books and then find the right home for them. And it's just not much more complicated than that. And that's something that you really do well. You take something that seems and you know, could be very complicated and you do a wonderful job at speaking our language. <laughs> no. and, and I mentioned your newsletter, Agents and Books, and this is something that uh, I think I subscribed to immediately. Once I saw that this was up, but you do a great job. You break down topics. One of the actually emails that you had sent out in the past few months that really stood out to me was I think you had gone to lunch with Howard Morheim and he had talked about he'd been asking you the questions about thinking about three years ahead. And Mm -hmm. you talked about how important it is for literary agents to always be considering three years ahead because publishing is slow and we have to be thinking about how when a book, when you sell a book, when it comes out, is it still going to be in the market? So that's something that I think is fascinating. You're always thinking three years ahead. How do you even manage doing that? What do you use for resources to make those kind of predictions? I'm definitely not predicting anything. Okay. You know, like I definitely not say looking in my crystal ball or publisher's marketplace or anything and being like, you know, what's going to be big in three years, vampires. Like <laughs> I, I, I cannot possibly do any of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm looking at my client list. I'm looking at who I know. And what they're working on and like when I think they're going to be done, when they're, which is not when they say they're going to be done, mm-hmm. which is fine. <laughs> and looking at my kind of slate and being like, OK, well, I've got this kind of novel that might come in. And I think this is going to be then. And OK, well, I got to have something else. And then mm-hmm. going to the things that are available to me, whether it's, oh, I have this idea in the back of my head and I'll go find somebody to write it or one eventually reopened to queries or I get a lot of referrals. And mm-hmm. so it's really gathering the information that's in front of me instead of trying to pull it out of the ether and just going with my gut in, in terms of, oh, well, I heard from the London Book Fair, things are kind of looking like this. and Okay. And, you know, well, I'm really tired of this story, but maybe I want something that that's like this. It's much less scientific than anybody wishes that it was, including mm-hmm. me. But you just kind of got to figure out what's in front of you and what you can do with it. Right. And I think that it also settles a lot with you like what you like as well. Right. So it's like part of it. You have to obviously love the book in addition to the self book. Mm-hmm. I also what I also really liked about that email 
that you had sent out was emphasizing the importance of mentorship. And I've Mm -hmm. found that invaluable in publishing in particular. I've just always seen wonderful companionship and mentorship and people lifting each other up and working together. So that's great to hear that that's also reinforced at your agent. Yeah. I mean, there's no other way to learn how to be an agent than an apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. Like someone has to tell you what what you need to do in all these tons of little situations. There's no book. There's no certification. There's no degree. And you just you don't know what you need to do until you're faced with that specific situation because everything is different, which is why actually writers need agents because your friend selling their historical novel is going to be a completely different situation than you selling your historical novel, even mm-hmm. if you sell it to the same company. So it's just an individualized experience for everybody, including the agent. And you don't really know how to do anything until you've done it once. Absolutely. And that really is a great bridge into what we want to talk about with contracts, because how are you supposed to handle (laughs) understanding contractual language? I worked as an editorial intern and then agency relations assistant. And this was, I didn't have to ever do anything with contracts, but this was the area that it it intimidated me, you know, because I don't have a lawyer background and you don't need a lawyer background to really figure out how to do these contracts. I don't think if you have the right mentors. But definitely this is an area as a writer where you know down the line you need a contract. And there's a lot of language you have to navigate. (laughs) And it's all different. It's all different. (laughs) Every contract is different. Every company's contract is different. Yeah. Super fun. Yeah. And well, you have this amazing article and I will share it in the show notes. You shared it with me. So thank you for that. It's from Catapult. And basically what you do is it's called Book Contracts, Let's Talk Money. I have never read a resource that broke this down in such a simplified and clear way as you did in this article. So yay, bravo. I can't can't wait to pick your brain about this because this is something, it's an area that I think I would get to and I'm like, I don't even know. How do I start? And you just broke it down. Exactly what you do. You break things down in a way that is comprehensible. Going into that, can you explain to us why a contract is so important for a writer and when they can expect to get a contract in their path to traditional publishing? Sure, definitely. And I want to give a couple disclaimers beforehand because I'm not a lawyer and this is not legal advice. And agents don't need to be lawyers because they can be. That's great if they are because book contracts are a very narrow, narrow, narrow type of little bit of contract law. And they all kind of say the same thing in different ways. And once you've read a good dozen of them, you you know what to expect when you have that mentorship. So just getting that out of the way. So you need a book contract because if there's money changing hands somewhere, then there's rules around that or there's expectations around that. Or there are, you have to cover your own assets and so does the publisher. And so it's just the how we do business. And the writer will... I can't expect the actual physical draft of the contract, a physical, i.e. a PDF. I would say anywhere from four to 12 weeks after the deal is done. And it just takes that long. And the clock starts ticking when you make the deal, not when you sign the contract. So if your book is due in six months and it takes three months for the contract to be done, your book's still due in six months. So you can... Just get started. And that's another misconception is that you can actually get started on the book. You can talk to your editor. You can send them samples. You can do all this stuff before the ink is dry, so to speak. So because 
no one's going to run off with your book. They legally can't do anything, you know, like can't publish it, can't steal it. All these fears that that authors sometimes have, it's not going to happen. And no one can legally do anything with your book until you sign the, the contract anyway. But it is safe to talk to your editor before you sign the contract. I've also had one deal go south between finalizing the offer and the contract. And that's because that company went out of business. So you don't have to be nervous that your editor is going to change their mind or they're going to be like, hey, we're cutting a zero off the end of this because we changed our mind. Like that's not going to happen either. Once the handshake is done, which is over email, a contracts department is going to build the draft and then they're going to send it to your agent or you and then it will go from there. But you can get started. Um, I love that you're pulling. Yeah. Well, I love that you're pulling that out because that is something I went to a writer's conference, a writer's digest conference 2015. And I do think that especially newer writers, they have this fear that their story is going to be stolen. No one is going to, writing a book is so hard and it takes a long time. And also, like, there's no original idea. It's, right, I mean, give me the same but different. So it's like, how is you have you really only you can tell your story the way that you're going to tell it. So I like that you're emphasizing that because I do think that there is this fear of it's going to get stolen, what's going to happen. And that's not what I think you need to be worrying about. Definitely not. But what you should be worrying about, maybe not, worry is probably the wrong word. What you should be thinking about is what actually justifies a good contract in your favor. Right. On those lines, then, the idea of what could actually justify when you know that your contract is a good deal. Versus what are some red flags that they need to be looking out for? Do you trust your literary agent to help you navigate this territory that is very unknown to us? But at the same time, how do you help your writers understand those terms when something is a good deal, when something is a red flag, and how do you negotiate with that? Yeah. What makes a good deal is highly individual. You know, some people might say, well, you know what, this four-figure advance for world rights is excellent. I love it. I want it. Let's go. Sign today. You know, and someone might be highly disappointed by that, or it might not be standard for their genre or their previous track record or anything. So there isn't a number and there isn't a set of rights and there isn't a set of royalty percentages that equal a good deal or a the best deal or the thing you have to get. Like it's not, you have to get $10,000 or you're just out of luck. I mean, I hope everybody gets at least that, if not much, much more. It's harder to categorize what is a good deal in a broad way than it is to talk about red flags. And I think some of the red flags of both actual drafts of contracts and the contract process is if you don't have an agent, a, a publisher pressuring you to sign. Oh, you got to sign now. You got to sign now. You got to do this. Oh, it's going to go away. It's going to go away. If they're playing like a high pressure game, that is not a good sign. Especially if the offer is a little bit lower than you think and you don't have anyone to help you with contracts, like that is a big red flag to me. I always say it's it's not any port in a storm in publishing. It is way worse to sign a bad deal than it is to just never get published or have that story never get published. It's way harder to undo a deal than it is to write another book, <laughs> which it doesn't sound like that should be true, but it is. I think that and it really depends. It, I'm going to say it depends like 50,000 times today, but most of the time it's a red flag if the publisher wants to own your copyright. They should not own your copyright unless you did not come up with that. And if you happen to be writing a Star Wars story, like some Star Wars has come to you and said, please write a story for us, you're not going to own that. Sorry, that's just not how it works. 
But if you have an original idea that is yours and you go to a publisher and they say, that's great, we want to own everything and we'll just give you this bit of money. That's not a deal that I would like to sign because it's your stuff. And there are probably more reputable publishers who will not want to keep your copyright. There are probably a million other little little things that I think are not great that may not be like huge red flags, but those are two that stand out to me. Yeah, I, I especially relate to the pressure one because I think that's the common, it can be common in sales. Like whenever you feel like you're being pressured to purchase something, I feel like that's a red flag because you we forget in those pr- high pressure moments that you can walk away. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I think it's it can seem devastating in the moment walking away. But in the reality, like you said, once you've signed something, that would be a much more difficult thing to back out of yeah. if it didn't go well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and once there's an offer, I mean, honestly, the writer has a lot more power than they think they do. Sure. Because you have the thing that the person wants. You know, mm-hmm. you have the story that the publisher wants. And yeah, they could they could walk away too. But if they really want it, they've already invested a lot of time. Like if an editor has read it and they put together an offer, they've invested a good bit of time into your project already. So they don't want to just walk away. When an offer is made, it, it's not going to evaporate. Mm-hmm. You know, you can take some time to think about it. You can go find an agent if you don't have one. No one is going to be mad at you. A lot of people think like, oh, well, I have this rep- this relationship with this editor and they made me an offer and if they get an agent they're going to be mad at me like they will not be mad at you they will be very happy that they don't have to explain this contract to you because they don't work for you (laughs) right they work for their major corporation or whoever is buying it and so they are going to explain the contract to you in this in in terms that it best suits them the company then then they are you and that doesn't mean people are twiddling their mustaches and tying you know people to railroad tracks and being evil it just means that they don't work for you if you don't have an agent an editor will talk to you about the contract but but also most editors don't handle the contract there's like a contracts person and i can't promise you that a contract person will explain everything to you Mm -hmm. and so it's not editors are wonderful and a lot of them do know a lot about contracts but not all of them also your uncle the divorce attorney is not the guy to go to for contract advice. He has no idea what this is. And that he will look at this and say, well, you should never give this kind of warranty and indemnities clause to a, you should never do that. And like, you are not going to fight McMillan on a warranties and indemnities clause, which I hope that none of you know what that is because, because you should not have to know what that is. Um, they will never change it for you. They won't change it for me. And it just, it basically says, hey, if you get sued, you're on your own, buddy. If you get sued and it's your fault, you're on your own. And if we get sued and it's our fault, we got it. You know, it's like that's a very gross generalization of what that clause means. Mm -hmm. But there are standards in book publishing that are not standard in contracts anywhere else. And a lawyer not versed in specific book publishing contracts will have no idea what standard and then waste your time and maybe your money. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. That's good advice. When you had mentioned earlier, something earlier you had said, and I that was something that I had thought about was, yes, don't just go to any random lawyer because agents and publishers, this is what you do. These are the contracts they work with. It doesn't mean that you're going to know every other contract in the world, but you very much know this one and you're dealing with it all the time. In that article, again, from Catapult, you break this down in three parts and you talk about money, rights, and what happens if something goes wrong. And I love, again, I love how you simplified it, right? So let's talk about money. Let's talk about rights. And let's talk about what happens if something goes wrong. 
And probably a big part of this is that money can be scary to talk about, but it's very important to talk about, especially because this is a business. At the end of the day, you're selling your product, right? Your product is your book. Let's start with money. What can people expect with money? What's an advance? Is there an average advance for a book? Can you just explain the process of once a contract comes in, how, why you think you should break it into these three categories? And then let's dive deep into each of them. Sure. So money, you'll know the money before you get the contract. The editor will offer you your or your agent the the offer and it'll say $10,000. I'm just going to use that number because yep. it's easily divisible. There is no average advance. Every genre has some kind of norms, but it's, it can just be anything. And when my clients ask me like, oh, how much money are we going to get for this book, Kate? I usually say more than $5,000 and less than $500,000 because mm-hmm. I don't know. And if I knew, then it would make my job much easier. But <laughs> I don't make those decisions. I don't make the money decisions. So you'll know the money and you'll know how much and your agent will negotiate that for you. And if you're doing it your own, just ask for more money. Just ask for more. Like you're not going to scare them off. Ask. Don't triple it. That's probably too much. But ask for Mm -hmm. more than you think you'll get because maybe they'll say yes. And then in the offer, we'll also say how you're getting paid and when you're getting paid. And that all goes into the contract with a lot more detail. For those who don't know what an advance is, an advance is the money that the publisher gives you against your future royalties. So your fantasy novel that you get $10,000 for from the publisher, you have to sell $10,000 worth of books at the rates in your, the royalty rates in your contract, which we'll talk about too. You got to fill up that pot of $10,000 and then you get royalties after that. And if you never get $10,000 in that pot, you do not owe the the balance back. You never owe the advance back unless you just don't write the book. And then they will come looking for you for the money. Or if you sell a fancy novel and you give them a cookbook, they're going to be like, hey, guy, what uh, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And so you don't owe the money back. And that royalty pot can be filled up in a lot of different ways outside of just sales. But it is your ebook and your hardcover and your paperback and maybe your audiobook and whatever rights that the publisher has that they sell, that money goes into the pot. And then you get royalties after that. You will get paid some certain sort of way, meaning a certain number of checks. Let's, for ease of math, say that you're getting paid in halves. So you'll get $5,000 for a $10,000 advance after you sign the contract, after everybody signs the contract. And remember, I said it could come three to six months off, not six months. Hopefully it's not six months. Let's say three or four months after the deal is done. And then your agent yells at your publisher about what they want changed or says very nicely what they want changed. And then that goes back and forth for a couple of weeks sometimes. And then you get it and then they get it and everybody signs it and then they send a check. Mm-hmm. So it takes a while to get that first check. And then you'll get the second check in a, this case, if it's halves, when you have finished the book or when you deliver the book. And it actually says in the contract, delivery and acceptance, which means after the editing. So if your book is due in September, you are not going to get a check on September 15th you might get it in January, depending mm-hmm. on your publication schedule, your editing schedule, what has to be done, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's fun. And, and you may have a deal that's separated into thirds. So it's signing, delivery, and acceptance of publication. Sometimes if it's a pretty big advance, you might have to wait months after publication for that fourth check, which we are trying to not have happen in publishing. Like agents, we're trying not to make that a thing. That's very hard to do. It has been since the pandemic. So all of that will be in your contract and you'll be able to look at it and be like, oh, right. 
my book's due in July. It means I have to do it. And we'll talk about what happens when things go wrong at that part. Just right, <laughs> right. And so it says, because after acceptance, so after acceptance would mean once the editor has said, this is good, this is ready to go. Sometimes it's when the book goes into copy editing. Okay. Sometimes when it goes into production, sometimes it, it can vary from book to book and place to place and editor to editor. And some, mm-hmm. you know, if this is your 15th book and you worked with your editor on 12 of them, you know, they're going to get that draft and be like, oh yeah, you can, you can, yeah, I see what, yeah, this is fine. Okay. I'll just put, I'll, I'll put through for the check. But sometimes they just can't, like everybody's rules are a little bit different. Right. And sometimes they can't get you that last check until the book goes to the printer. And it's not fun. Yeah. Well, and especially because agents work on 15% commission. So the money would first go to the agent, right? And then I would think that the agent would pay out the author. But Mm -hmm. you're also waiting in those chunks as well, I would assume. So there's a lot of money on hold for different stages at a lot of times. (laughs) Yeah. And and most most often... The check goes to the agent, the agent takes 15% and then mm-hmm. pays the rest of the author. Very occasionally some agents are set up that, you know, the publisher sends 15% to the agent and the other the other half to the author directly. Sometimes that's how they do it. But most of the time it all goes through the agency. Yeah. 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 And you've talked you also mentioned that since the pandemic, it's hard to not have four payments instead of two or three. I think I've read in the article that two is the ideal, which makes sense, right? It's the easiest. Three is not yeah. so bad or now are stretching it out. Is that just because of delay in production? What's caused that issue? At first, from what I understand, it was uh, cash flow issues from retailers because mm-hmm. the retailers weren't open. So they weren't selling any books in stores. And so then the stores weren't paying the money to the publishers on the stock that they already sent to them. And it was just bad. And so then, you know, some publishers were saying, hey, we're up against a wall. This is the best we can do, blah, blah, blah. And we were all like, well, I get it. You know, it's a pandemic. What are we going to do about it? But then that has seemed to stick around as a policy in some places. And it's not wonderful. No. So there's and and different projects have different payout structures, like a graphic novel might have, you know, someone signing some when you do the thumbnails, some when you do the inks and then full color and then production. You know, like there's a lot there's a lot of different ways that th- things can be broken up Two is awesome because it happens the quickest, mm-hmm. you know. But it will be dependent on the kind of book about what it is. And 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 an agent tries to get that as front-loaded as possible so that the author gets paid to do the actual book. Okay. And part of this as well, when you talk about like, because the publishing company, the publisher would sell to someone like a bookseller. So libraries, bookstores, local bookstores. Would they also sell to Amazon? Yeah, Amazon is just a retailer, just like just retailer, just like anybody else. Okay, yeah. so Amazon, all so all of these people that they're selling their books to, and it's also a consignment business. So there is part of the reason why it's been so like well, there's a delay in all of this is because I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that they, if they don't sell those books, they can actually get them back for reimbursement yeah. from the publisher, yeah. right? So how does that work? Most public, most retailers work on consignment with a publisher, so that. At your local, you know, store independent down the street or Amazon or Barnes & Noble, whoever says, hey, I want uh, 200 copies of this book. And the publisher says, sure thing, and sends them 200, 200 copies and, and the bill. And I'm not exactly sure when that publisher pays that bill. That's not part of my job. And whether they, I'm not sure. Somebody else probably does know and I could probably ask a friend. But so local bookstore puts books out on the shelf and 
maybe a couple months later, they realize they've only sold 150 copies and they're not going to sell anymore. They've got, they don't have enough room to keep all of these books and their stock room is overflowing and there's new books coming out. And so they'll just send those 50 books back to the publisher mm-hmm. and those are called returns. And that is what happens all the time. And that's why you never really know how many books you're sold, you've sold at any given specific day mm-hmm. because you don't know if your bookstore down the street is going to send 50 copies back today or tomorrow or next mm-hmm. week. Mm-hmm. And returns happen like, oh, your paperback's coming out in three months. Well, they're not going to go order 55 more hardcovers. Right, right. So, And that might not, that's not going to impact the advance, but it probably will, well, definitely will impact the royalties, right? So when we talk about trying to earn, once you've, because once you've met your advance, or will it impact it? Because if they haven't met uh, their advance. It's just sales. You okay. know, it's just, it's just how the book is sold. Mm-hmm. So if, it's kind of, it it can vary so much. There's hardly any way to to kind of generalize it, but everybody's book gets returns. Mm -hmm. It's just a thing that happens. Hopefully what happens is that you don't get that many returns and that bookstores keep ordering it because people are keeping buying it and coming into the store and ordering it. And as those books don't come back, your publisher calculates the net number of books you sold. So shipped minus returns. And then that's how you get sales. And then twice a year, most of the time, your publisher sends you a royalty statement. That's a statement of accounts. And it says, okay, well, in the last six months, you've, we've shipped 10,000 books and, eight, and only 2,000 have come back. So you've sold 8,000 copies. And this is how much you earned. Or this is all the hardcovers and this is all the eBooks. And, oh, we sent a bunch of books to England or whatever the things are that your book has, that has happened to your book. And then they do all the math. And you may get money or you may not, depending on your advance, depending on your earnings, depending on how many, what, where you are in the cycle of your book. And then publishers can do something called holding reserve. So if you have, if they've shipped 10,000 copies of your book and haven't seen any returns yet because your book's only been on sale for a couple of months, but it's time for a royalty statement, they're not going to pay you for those 10,000 copies because they're not really sold. Mm -hmm. You just haven't. They just don't know what's going to come back yet. So they're going to say, hey, we're going to pretend that we're not going to count 5,000 of those so that they're just not over. They're just not paying you royalties because they don't know how much you have earned yet. Right. And and it's like a buffer. So because they know if they send money out to an author, that money is not coming back. They're not going to go chase authors for, oh, sorry, we paid you $300 too much. Right. You're like, yeah, no, that money's gone. So there's the reserve against returns. And after a couple of statements, that goes away because the rate of returns is evened out. And there are things in the contract that say, okay, you can't hold a reserve for more than so-and-so number of royalty statements, you know. And those are the things that the agent knows that you would never know mm-hmm. because, you know, you've never even heard right. of a reserve against returns. Right. So that's a good breakdown of an idea of advances. And... Once you earn out your advance, then so you can start earning royalties. Now, when you get your initial contract, are there cases where someone might have advance and royalties? Is there a case where it's just an advance? Is there a case where it's just royalties? What can we expect in general? Your your average book deal is probably going to be advance and royalties. There are deals that are flat fee. So maybe they called you up and said, hey, I, I see you're an expert about tarot cards. Will you write this tarot card book? That's our idea. And you say, yes, I will. And it might be a flat fee or a very, and a very small percentage of royalties or no royalties. 
if you're doing something, a Star Wars book, you know, whatever, it's a, it could be a flat fee and a tiny royalty or an advance and a tiny royalty. Mm-hmm. There are some smaller publishers that will just do straight, you know, royalties, 50-50 or some large percentage because you do not get 50% royalties on a standard book contract. You might get 10 to 15% depending on the format, like hardcover, paperback, et cetera. And there, that, that's out there. There have been in the past some imprints at larger publishers at HarperCollins and Macmillan that have tried that as a format, being like, we're going to end this together. Or we're going to split the profits 50-50. But that doesn't actually seem to work that well at a major publisher. Yeah. But it does work well at some smaller indie publishers. So you might get that, but you're not going to get a, a contract from Random House that says no, no advance and 50% royalties. Like, it's probably just not going to happen. Why do you think it works well in some indie publishers, but not the big publishers? The indie publishers don't have the cash for the advance, so that's all they can offer. Yeah. And and it, but, and it appeals to some publishers, small publishers and some authors that it totally appeals to them. And, like, you could go do that. But publishing... But major publishing or like big five publishing, traditional publishing, it it's it's the way we've always done it, which is right. the word of what happens in a lot of cases that we should not use that as an excuse to do it that way. Yeah. But it's the way that it works out. Yeah. And like you've said, it can be completely dependent on what the book is. There are going to be authors that have already proven themselves as big names. And they're going to get higher advances because they're guaranteed to make the the publisher's money, right? And in that case, sometimes what they make is what covers losses in other areas, right? Yeah. That even happens when it like surprises the publisher. Okay. When they just buy a book and all of a sudden everybody loves it. Everybody buys a million copies and all of a sudden it's made a ton of money. And it's not always like, okay, well, the Stephen King is always going to pay for these other like 25 little guys. Sometimes they're surprises and like the book, the business is built on windfall. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's why, you know, pundits and people with, you know, TV shows and et cetera, et cetera, get book deals and big ones. And because people will go buy the book. Mm-hmm. That's what's just where we are because it's a retail industry. Yeah. If you don't earn out your advance, is that going to impact your advance for your next book? Could. Mm-hmm. Trends on the idea. It, there's no, there's no like litmus test. There's no the thing that says, okay, well, if you earn back 93% of your advance, you're guaranteed to get that number again. And if you earn back 110%, you get 110% of your next advance. Like there's just no metric that I've ever heard. And that there's never a metric that ever like applies to every book. If the publisher is not thrilled about the, the way that the book went and the next idea isn't that great, they're going to use the sales track record which is this kind of the same thing as the advanced earnout percentage as a, as a reason to say no or to say, mm-hmm. well, you know, we know we gave you 50 for the last one, but can only afford to give you 30 for this one. You know, like they can do whatever they want. They could also say, well, you know, the first book was, it was just a debut. It was a weird market, but we love the second idea. Here's 50 grand more, you know, like mm. they're going to do whatever they're going to do. Um, it's interesting and- because the just, it seems like then your first deal, how the language is used is really important to set you up for the future or can it change a lot? Well, yes and no, because yeah, they're going to use your first deal as kind of a benchmark often. It it doesn't really start from scratch every time. And when you sign a contract, that becomes your boilerplate. And the agency has an overall boilerplate almost everywhere 
that your agency should, where we've already argued about the little things that we know we want for everybody, like, oh, we need this and the so-and-so clause or whatever. And hopefully they give us, when they we get the draft of your contract, mm-hmm. the boilerplate filled in with all the little things we've already argued about. And there's always a change and they always forget something and they always say, oh, that wasn't a precedent. And they do what they want. But then we go back through and yell about the little things that we want. And then we yell about the big things we want. So it's really hard if you've agreed to X and Y in your first book mm-hmm. to go back and say, well, well no, we're not going to give you audio rights this time because right. it's not impossible to get those things, get a different deal structure, a different deal um, overall for your second book. It's not written in stone that you automatically get the same contract over again. It is. It just makes it harder if you've already said yes to something to then say yes to say no to it again. Sure. Something else that I think is important to ask is: Does an advance determine the quality of a book? Because I think that there are misconceptions about that. Yeah. (laughs) No. This has never been a meritocracy. You know, like uh, some good books get really good, wonderful, like high advances, and some fantastic books get like three dollars and fifty cents. You know, like Mm -hmm. and there are some really bad books. It's who what you might consider a bad book. They get a billion dollars, and you're just like, why? It is not about deserve. It is about return on investment. Okay. And do you know if there's any telltale signs of like if you're getting shafted? If people feel like they're getting shafted in any way? Nah, uh, people feel like they're getting shafted all the time. Okay. Um, you know, like everybody has an expectation, and when it's not met, they feel like they're getting shafted. And like, there's no benchmark. There's not saying. There's no, nothing that says like, well, if your advance is less than five thousand dollars, then you shouldn't even get out of bed. Like, I don't know. I've done deals for less than about five thousand dollars, and then it worked out great. You know, and yeah. it is dependent upon what you can afford to do. Right. Which we were very few of us are actually living off of our writing income. You know, me included, and. You get to make that call. I've definitely said no to offers on behalf of my clients who could not afford to produce the book for that money. And a lot of times it was illustrated books or I used, I have done a bunch of craft books in my past, like sewing and knitting. And it's like, okay, well, when I calculate my time and my supplies and when I what I can't do on my, my other businesses that pay the rent, I can't actually do this book. And I've just we've just said no because they could not afford to do it. Mm-hmm. So that just happens sometimes. Sometimes you just say no. Yeah. I forget who told me this now, but somewhere down the line of learning, writing, agenting, wherever I was, someone talked about how it's almost a gift before you have your first deal because you don't have deadlines. And then after you have your first deal, then you do have deadlines. So can you talk a little bit about that? Like, Is there an expectation of now? Because I'm sure the question is, once you publish your first book, where's your next one? Yeah. I mean, you're book contract will have a deadline in it that says, okay, hey, you got to finish this book if you haven't written it all. Or, you know, the publishing schedule will not be in the contract. It, will, it won't say, okay, well, you turn your book in July and it'll be published in, in August 2025. Like it does not say that in there. But it will say your book is due X date and you got to do it by then and you got to do it by then. And your contract will also likely say something like, okay, well, if you're late, you have a grace period of this, and this is what's supposed to happen if you're really late, or this is what happens if the publisher is really late. Like we call these cures. And this is the part where that, you know, like what, when something goes wrong, like that's mm-hmm. what the contract will say, like what, ha- like what's supposed to happen. And Howard has always said that to me that a book contract is, is a contract is scar tissue. So when something has gone wrong, we've gone back and put it in the contract so it doesn't happen again. 
Mm-hmm. And and so if somebody is three years late on a book, the publisher is going to be like, hi, guess what? You can't be three years late on your book or we won't publish it. You know? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And And there isn't this like magical computerized red flag system that says, oh, this person was 24 hours late and this person, you know, didn't earn out their advance. Like there, no one's watching the contract until something goes wrong. Mm-hmm. So if you know you're going to be late, then you just go talk to your people. You talk to your editor, you talk to your agent and you they you work it out. It's not like you're going to get an email with like clacks on red warning sign. Like you're late, you're late, you're late. You're no one is, and no one is looking at your homework. Right. Until they notice you didn't turn in your homework. So before, I guess like by the time that the, the, the date comes that you're supposed to t- turn in your homework, yeah. at that point, are they then planning when a book is going to come out? Are they starting to pick the date then? Or is that already been picked before the book is submitted? That's usually already been picked. Like when you, when, even when they buy a book and when they set, when they discuss the delivery date with you. Mm-hmm. They have an idea of what season the book is going to be in, whether it's fall 2025 or and every publisher has slightly different seasons. Sometimes they have three, sometimes they have two, like summer, winter, fall or just summer and fall, which doesn't make any sense. But that's just what we do. So they have an idea because they have to schedule the books that are going to come out so that they don't have 16 historical novels coming out in summer 2026 and like right. nothing but political books coming out in fall 2024, you know, so. They have to bury their wares so that they have cool things to sell. And then if you're really, really late, that your book is going to get moved around. They're not going to do what we call crash a book, which is something sometimes that happens where they everybody just works really hard and a book gets done in six weeks or something like that. Something that might take six months. You don't get to get that if you're just late for funsies. And if your book is tied to an event you got to get your book done or you might miss that window. Every book is taken individually, but if you're slacking off, doesn't mean everybody's going to jump to fix your problem. That's really great for a big picture on how a standard contract would work. And then you get into all of these like miscellaneous items. And then I'm sure also we have like sub rights and international sales. So is all of that in the initial contract? Is that something that you renegotiate later? How does this all work? Everything that's in the offer is the rights. So Mm -hmm. what are you giving to the publisher and what do they get to make? And most book contracts say I, the author, give the publisher the right to publish and distribute my book in a certain amount of territories and a certain language or languages and in certain format. So it's either world rights or North American rights. So North American territories, U.S. and and Canada and the Philippines because of the military and various other little possessions that we have as a country. And Mm -hmm. then there could be world English rights, which is obviously all the places in the world where there's a significant English speaking market. And then there's world rights, all languages where Mm -hmm. they can send it in English anywhere they want, where they can license it to other people to translate and sell it in other places. And so your the offer will specifically say what the territory and the languages of the of the contract will be. And then it will then delineate the formats that they can either do themselves or license to somebody else. So right now it's really hard to keep the audio rights for the, to the author. The uh, audio has exploded as a format. Everybody's listening to them. I listen to like four or five audiobooks a month. Yeah. Easy. And they're valuable. So they, right. so the publisher wants them. And you're not going to be able to argue your way to, into keeping them. The benefit of keeping any right is that your agent will then sell it independently for you. And then that check comes straight to you. 
mm-hmm. because if Random House keeps your audio rights, which is likely, if not completely all the time happening, they either Random House Audio does it and then the royalties from those sales go in your advance pot and they can fill up faster or they license it to Blackstone Audio or somebody. And then the money from Blackstone goes to Random House and then you get a chunk of it according to what your contract says. But and you that do goes get your royalty. Yeah. You do get a, a piece oh, yeah. of that. You always yeah. get something. Yeah. yeah. And the difference is cash flow. Because if I sell a right directly for my client, whether that's a Warren translation or an audiobook or a film, then the check comes to me and the check goes to the author. Mm-hmm. But if a publisher does it, the check goes from the licensor, like the audio publisher, the film people, into to the publisher to the royalty account. Mm-hmm. And then you don't get money until you fill the, royal, the advanced bucket. Sure. And so there are other things that are important about that that maybe make sense to the, for an individual author about whether they keep or give rights. And there are different standards for different genres, like graphic novels, like almost always the world writes all languages deal because the book is so expensive to produce that the publisher is like, we're not going to make any money if we can't sell it in France, which has a huge graphic novel mar- market. So it obviously varies, which I, in defense, which is sent out times today. But that's the kind of thinking about how you negotiate rights and territories. And the contract says everything down to to the littlest, tiniest thing that could possibly happen to your book, like theme parks. Mm-hmm. No one's making a theme park of your book. You know, like our T-shirts or figurines or right. paper products like journals or, you know, graphic novels. Like so many little things go into the contract that nothing, that never will get done. Just because it's in the contract doesn't mean it will ever get done and that's okay. Right. And even if you sell world rights to the publisher, that does not mean that your book will may be in every language Wind in every country, even if, you know, Harper Collins had Harper India and Harper France and Harper Germany or whatever, mm-hmm. they don't automatically just make everybody's books. They're all individual companies under the same umbrella. And Harper Germany says, oh, we like that book. Can we do that one? Or Harper U.S. goes to Harper Germany and says, do you want any of these books? Right. You know, or, and then any other publisher, Harper, like all the other German publishers, they go to them to sell those rights. Because it's already up front in the deal. So they're there. It's just a matter of whether or not they're going to take advantage of that or not. Yeah. And there are just books that don't sell overseas because there's nobody there who wants to read them. No, you know, it just everybody's market is different. There are books in England that we never see because we just aren't interested in whatever the thing is that they right. are writing right. about and vice versa. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it makes me think of like I mentioned off podcast, my my background is TV, radio, and film. And there was this movie called Exporting Raymond. So everybody loves Raymond mm-hmm. and how they were trying to export it in Russia and how they just were completely <laughs> changing the the humor of it. But the humor in America is very different than the humor in Russia. So it's like there's just going to be different tastes depending on culture, societies, people. Yeah. I'm sure the same would apply yeah. for books. Um, yeah. I had a pretty po- I had a popular book many years ago called I Can Has Cheeseburger. And it was pictures of funny cats on the Internet. And they all, the captions were in, were, were bad grammar. Like that was the whole point. Yeah. You can't translate that. Yeah. Like it was in England. I want to say it had a, like one or two foreign editions, but it was a huge deal here. It hit two different books. They had like five of them hit the list, hit the New York Times bestseller list in the hardest list to hit, which was advice how to miscellaneous, which is the hardest list. It does, like literally cannot translate. Right into another language. I mean, so, there, there are tons of memes done on how difficult the English language is. So. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. And also, yeah. like, cats aren't necessarily funny everywhere. Right. You know, like, maybe the French don't really think cats are funny. I don't right. know. Right. 
Now, a lot of agencies, they ha also have like an international or a foreign rights agent, right? So mm -hmm. are those, are the foreign rights agents specifically working with contractual language like this in the same contract? Or is it a different contract when it is talking about international sales? And agencies, foreign co-agents or in-house co-agents or, or foreign rights agents are separate from a book contract that doesn't include the rights they could sell. Okay. So if you only sell North American English rights to Random House, then your agents, co-agents or in-house rights agents, they have the opportunity to go sell it in other places. And that's just their jam and your jam and has nothing to do with Random House. And it ex explicitly says in the contract that Random House can't do anything in translations because they don't have the rights to it. Mm -hmm. And so then the, the foreign rights agents send the book out to the people they know. And then there's a new contract for mm -hmm. Germany, for France, for Turkey, for wherever. And when we tell random moms, hey, we got a deal in Germany. And they're like, that's fantastic. And that's not their business. How does something work with like Audible where you can have memberships? So someone might pay, instead of purchasing the book, they pay 15 a month and they get a credit. And all the books are different prices, but your credit accounts for everything. So how does something yeah. like that work? Subscription model royalties are a bonkers math problem Yeah, that right. is not necessarily explicit in the contract. And this also goes for film stuff when you have like, when people say like points on the back end, like it's a percentage of a big pot of money. And that's all they are going to tell you. <laughs> like right. the subscription revenue goes into a big pot and you get something, something, something of the of the prescription pot and that's what it does and that is probably not explicit in a book contract mm -hmm. but it would be explicit in like an audible contract or another retailer like an independent publisher of audiobooks contract what the random house contract would say is you get 25 percent of the money we get or whatever it is and when they get the money you just get your slice and that's, okay. that's all it's going to say would the payouts be similar to when you get a book or is it different no. So when a publisher sells subrights, so audio, whatever, that agreement is between the publisher and the licensor, Audible, whoever, and they get the money whenever they get it. And then it goes into your account whenever they get it. And then you don't get paid until the royalty periods end. And only if you then earned out your advance. All the major publishers, traditional publishers pay royalties twice a year. Often they're calculated January to June and then July to December. The January to June statement and money comes in like August. And then the July to December money comes in like April <laughs> or something. And maybe, and it's a big mess. And that's in your contract too. And it'll tell you, it won't tell you when you're going to get that money, but it isn't the same as like, oh, you get half on sign, half on whatever. The percentage. Yeah. It's, you just get a percentage according to your to your contract the percentages counts for royalties as well right so like if it you might get 10 percent of a book sale and then the sales of the books are going to be different because you have hardcovers and then it comes out in paperback and kindle right all these other versions so how does that work well there's there's kind of two different things so if the publisher is doing the format the hardcover the paperback the ebook it's going to say oh you get 10% of the hardcover and 7% of the paperback and 25% of the ebook that, okay. that we have published. They are different though, usually. Yeah, all the formats are different. And if the publisher then, in a different case, 
sells the UK rights to somebody, then you get anywhere from 50 to 75% of that money, depending on your deal. The royalties is between the publisher and and the, the publishers. Mm-hmm. And you just get a percentage of the check that comes in. Okay. Yeah, that's usually it. So if you, if that's the difference between like a primary right and a subsidiary right. Yes, this gets really complicated. No, no, I, but I, <laughs> again, like this is why you have a literary agent to help you with this. Because, it, you know, you trust your literary agent to help you understand what is a good deal versus not a good deal. Because something like you've mentioned before how when they offer you an advance, you always ask for more money and you should always be doing that. And that's probably expected. I would expect the publisher to expect that. Does the same scenario apply to percentages with royalties? Could you ask for more percentage or is that standard? They're pretty standard, but that doesn't mean they've given you the standard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it varies a little bit genre to genre. YA and middle grade royalties and picture books are a little bit less than adult, which is kind of crappy, but also their price points are lower. Mm-hmm. So that makes sense. Illustrated books have different royalties than just textbook, text-based books, prose books. There's like a million different things. If you were offered 10% of the hardcover book, you can ask for some more. There's usually different ways that those are set up. You can always ask for more. The worst they can say is no. They're not going to march off in a huff, but you're not going to get 25% of hardcover royalties. They're just not going to get that. I I can't imagine that ever happening. Because they wouldn't make money, probably, right? If they were getting that much. Right. Yeah. Yeah. 12% is good. 12% is fantastic on our adult hardcover. But you also shouldn't think, well, they're going to be mad if I ask. So I'm just going to ask for more royalties, not more cash. Ask mm-hmm. for everything more. Mm-hmm. Ask for, tell them you want to give them fewer rights and you want more money and more royalties and then let them come back to you with what they can do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just ask because they're not going to disappear. And you've mentioned how rights and owning the rights is so important. So something like when it comes to the rights of your book, I guess I have a twofold question here. One of them is that how long does someone own the rights for and what does that mean? And why would that give you an advantage in this game? So you, the, in most traditional deals, the, the writer always owns the copyright, unless it's a Star Wars book or whatever. Like you retain the copyright. The publisher will, will file for the copyright for you. You do not have to call the Library of Congress. You can put the little C next to your work. That does, it's mostly meaningless. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter. Mm-hmm. So you are giving them the right to do some certain stuff. You're giving Random House the right to to produce some stuff and edit some stuff and do some stuff according to the terms of the contract. And then there will be a term of the contract. And most of the time, that is the term of copyright, which is defined by copyright law in the United States. And it's probably a number I should know off the top of my head, but I don't remember. And it's like X number of years plus the life of the author, mm-hmm. something, something, something. Mm-hmm. There will also be a clause, a termination clause that says, or an out of print clause, I should say, that says, hey, if this book isn't selling anymore, we can ask for the rights back. The author can ask for the rights back. What the author can do with those rights is is like a whole nother conversation, like whether they could have it republished if that's useful. But you don't want to give Random House a perpetual license for the book or any publisher. And so you, it says, out of print is defined in the contract in lots of different ways or several different ways, but it's not just like, well, there are zero books in stores because with an ebook, there's always a book. Mm-hmm. There are certain criteria that book has to meet for the author to be able to say, hey, can I have my rights back? 
And then the publisher gets to do some stuff where they, they try to sell it more, market it again, blah, blah, blah. And they can either choose to do that or not. Or they can say, yeah, we don't have any more books in the warehouse of this. Yeah, it's it's run its course. We're cool. Here, you have the rights back. Mm-hmm. And that means you have the distribution rights to your book back, which means you could put it on a self-publishing platform or you could try to sell it to somebody else, except for licenses that still exist. Like, well, it's not out of print in France yet, so you can't sell it to France. You know, you don't get the cover of your book because you didn't design it. You don't get the interior design of your book, the files that that make up the printed look of your book because you didn't design it. If the publisher made any pictures or illustrations that you don't own, you don't get those. But you have the text of your book and you can do some other stuff for it. But it's not like you just get to like knock on a door and say, hey, can I have the design files to my book? You're just not going to get it. Back summer, probably could be close to a year now, but somewhere in Publishers Weekly, there's a big, I forget the name, a big book marketer was retiring. And the article was about how talking about how like books are so visually run. It's like basically like so much of the market of selling a book is the visual appeal, the design. And mm-hmm. people buy books like decorations. And of course, ideally, yeah. you're going to sell also for design and story because that's how yeah. people talk about them. But that is interesting. Like that would be a whole other can of worms is the design, right? Huge can of worms. And you want a beautiful book, but right. you don't own it. So you don't get to take it if, right. the, book, if the contract ends. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay. As the market constantly changes, especially in this post-pandemic era, uh, have agents seen contracts change drastically or do you anticipate any of those changes in the future? I know that you mentioned the payouts have changed a bit. Has anything else changed drastically? Not necessarily pandemic related, but we have seen in the last five years or so morality clauses Okay, that basically say, hey, if you get canceled, we can we can take your book away or we can not publish your book. We can get out of this contract. Does that happen a lot? Only the ones you hear about in the news, really, honestly. You know, like it it is a cover your rear move Mm -hmm. by the publishers, which I don't really begrudge them. It makes some sense. I mean, from their business perspective. And what we have agents have done is made it really hard for them to to cross that hurdle. So you can't just be like, "Mm, somebody on Twitter doesn't like you. We can cancel the contract. You give us the money back. Like Mm -hmm. it has to be, it has to meet these criteria. It has to be this widespread public condemnation like blah 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 like all these different things and that as as the culture of this has changed as our culture has changed like i my view of this has evolved i think it's we're not going to get out of it you know like i wish i could take them all out just because they're weird clauses and, and it's like amorphous but i also want to i want them to evolve as the culture has evolved because like what if you know, I have a trans client and now there's all these anti-trans bills. Well, you can't just cancel the book because they're trans, not right. just because it's like discrimination and all these things, but like just because they're a, a vocal section of the culture who think that this is a bad thing uh, it, to say the absolute least about these horrible things people are doing and saying mm-hmm. legally, mm-hmm. the publisher can't turn around and be like, well, this loud part of the world is doesn't like that this human exists. So that's a thing I think about as culture is devolving, I guess you may be saying. Yeah. And and just want it. Our goal in that clause is to make it hard for the publisher to enact it. 
because it should be it should be a high bar. It should be right. a really high bar. It should be of lots of different reasons. We're obviously talking about AI in, in the agency and among agents. Excuse me, with the the AALA and the Authors Guild and lots of places being like, okay, can you license my book to a corpus that feeds machine learning or not? You know, like, can you record an audiobook with an AI generated voice or not? You know, so that's a little bit in flux. There was a there was a hot minute when we were all worried about NFTs, but obviously that went away. So we didn't have to put I didn't put anything in contracts that says like you can't make an NFT out of this book because mm-hmm. it just kind of disappeared fast enough. And there are other clauses that restrict the publisher of just like doing wacko things with things. I mean, having an audio, an AI reader for an audiobook, I think that would be devastating. I don't want that to ever happen to no. my clients. There's so much depends on the narrator. Oh, yeah. No. I mean, I've stopped listening to books just because I didn't like the human narrator. I have, it too. Pers- I have, yeah, too. And just- it wasn't even the story. It was just like, I just can't handle. I have to read this one, you know? Yeah. 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 They're even like uh, on my like calm down, fall asleep apps. Like I can't. Some of the narration of the little like whatever stories right. they tell me. I was like, oh, this person's voice is distracting. Right. You know? Other times it's like, wow, I love this one. And then you get that one again. You're like, yes, I know this yes. is going to be an excellent narration. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But so much artist. depends on that. Like it, it is. It's an art. It's a true art. So, yeah, that's crazy yeah. to think about that. Yeah. Yeah. That we're addressing that as much as we can. Those things evolve. And. And you just talk to each other about what's being fair, what's what are some concerns, just staying in the network helps with those, what yep. understanding what you need to negotiate and when you need to negotiate it. Yeah. And who got what? Sometimes we unofficially share notes mm-hmm. between agents. If you're a publisher and you're listening, of course, we don't do that. But like, you know, it just it's a friendly industry. So right. we're going to talk. Yeah. I just love that about publishing because I do think, especially in the agencies I've seen just agents look out for agents and authors look out for authors. So I love that. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, this is a wealth of knowledge. At the end (laughs) of every podcast, I do like to do a lightning three. So I think we're at the top of this. We'll round it up with the lightning three. And the first of that that I have, uh, the first question that I have for you goes back to one of your newsletters. And you mentioned a shift to paperbacks, but also how publishers have made recent decisions not to publish some hardcovers and paperbacks. I read it and I think I was like, this is interesting, but I'm not sure I completely have wrapped my head around what this means. So I was just selfishly just trying to pick your brain a little bit more about that specific question on because I do think that authors are thinking along the lines of like, it's going to come out in hardcover. Then does it shift to paperback? If it doesn't shift to paperback, is that something that's something that they should be worried about or afraid about? How is it working these days with hardcovers and paperbacks? And is there are there any shifts or changes that authors should be aware of when it might not be going so well or when it's fine? Yes. It used to be that it would come out in hardcover and then a year later it would come out in paperback and everybody was happy and that's just the way it worked. And that is not how it works anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, some of this has to do with financial just weirdness in the whole entire country. And sometimes it's, it also has to do with changes at the retailers. And this has actually even changed more since I think I wrote that because like BNN, under James Daunt has kind of moved a lot, especially in YA and middle grade about what format they really like and what they don't like. And I think it's that they really want paperbacks and they don't want mm-hmm. hardcovers. Mm-hmm. I hope I didn't get that reversed. And so it's a, a little bit of the Wild West out there. And the, and yeah, and a lot of people get disappointed where their book is just not going to come out in paperback and there's just nothing they can do. And sometimes mm-hmm. that has to do with a sell-through, which is 
how many books you've sold in the hardcover format. Sometimes they hold a paperback because the, the hardcover is selling pretty well, which is not a bad thing. And they just want people to keep buying the hardcover. I think that happened, at least from what I could glean, because I don't represent Angie Thomas, but with The Hate You Give by Angie mm-hmm. Thomas, that didn't come out in paperback for a heck of a long time. And Celeste Engs made Little Fires Everywhere, I think. Yeah. I think it was, the paperback was like four years later. <laughs> it was. The it was book selling. Was so, yeah, it's selling. So it is a strategic decision now instead of an automatic thing. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it means like, yeah, it's not working that great. Sometimes it means it's working really well. Mm-hmm. So I will say, again, it depends. But it's not always a fun decision and you don't always get what you want. And there isn't much you can do about it except for write another good book. I love hardcovers or paperbacks or Kindles or audiobooks. I like them in all the forms. But I feel like I see more paperbacks coming out more and more as well as the first book. And probably that's part yep. of related to just the sales because it's yeah. less less the cost of production or? there And actually more of the genre. There are okay. certain genres where people just really will, will pick up an 18 or 16. I don't even know what a hardcover adult, I mean, a trade paperback clock these days, but I get a lot of books for free. Sorry. My publishing privilege. But sometimes <laughs> you're doing a lot for authors, just... so you don't need to apologize for it. <laughs> I get yeah. plenty of books, but sometimes it's just the genre is just like working really well on trade paperback and people like it, you know? Yeah. And so that's not going to happen with like real big, serious memoir by some guy in the CIA, but it might work out great for science fiction, something else, a mystery. I don't know, like something else. It's not about quality or value. It's just business. Yeah, just business. Excellent. Okay, for my second question, I do want you to highlight your newsletter because there's so much in there. So talk to listeners about your inspiration for this newsletter, what you're doing with it and how they can sign up called Agents and Books. It's at katemckeen.substack.com. I, I like to write. I'm a writer. I have an agent. I have books that have not sold, just like everybody. Yeah. But I love to write and I like to talk, as you have noticed in this podcast. And I also like to teach. And I I want to tell people about publishing. I like to talk about it. So when Substack started up, I found out about it, talked to the guys, and, and I was like, yeah, I'm going to do this. And my goal was to do two posts a week. Tuesday is like, I used to call it a nuts and bolts post where I'd be like, this is a contract and this is an option clause and this is blah, blah, blah. And it would be free because I want that stuff to be out there. And then Thursday, I would do a paid one. I do do a paid one. And it would Mm be more kind of access to me, actually, where I'd be like, I was doing Q&As. And I I had this thing called the 50 Queries Club, where if you had sent your your query up to 50 people and not gotten an agent, you could send it to me and I would critique it. And I am like, Three years behind on that, guys. I'm so sorry, but it's hard to do. <laughs> it is. Yeah. So, and sometimes I have posts where it's just like or an open thread or something like that, where it's just, I want the stuff to be available as much as I can. Mm-hmm. And I also want to get paid for my writing just like everybody else. So that's how I split it up. It's really informal. You'll please never e- email me about my typos. I know that they're there. I don't really care. <laughs> I'm, I'm with you on and, that. And so, yeah. I always say I'm, I'm not. I'm not a copy editor. So. Yeah, yeah. Me yeah. either. No. Even though one of my very good friends is a copy editor, and she very politely does not tell me when I have errors because she loves me. But also, as you said before, I want to debunk this stuff. I want it to be accessible. I want to like give as much real talk as I can, mm-hmm. and that's what I was trying to do. Yeah, and you're doing a great job. And like, it comes through that you're a writer as well. 
which I think gives you this personal side of understanding what the writer's trying to navigate, which I, I think translates in how you break down what seemingly complicated concepts, right? So yay, thank, thank you, you, thank you. <laughs> For my third and final question, if a writer is now finding themselves in a place of being offered representation, so the best case scenario, this is their dream agent, they're being offered representation, when it comes to contracts, should they be asking the agent questions and things like that? Because I think sometimes I've seen writers who are then afraid to ask questions about this stuff. And do you think that they should always be having an open communication with their agent on anything that they're confused about when it comes to contracts or anything related to actually selling the book? You should never be afraid of your agent, like, or afraid of asking a question because you're maybe intimidated by, intimidated by your agent. I understand that. People tell me they're intimidated by me. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, how, <laughs> how, why possible? So your agent is never going to, hopefully, never yell at you or tell you how to question or expect you to know these things. Like, you have the agent because you don't know these things. Mm-hmm. So whether you, you might be nervous, like, I understand, but, like, ask the question. They're busy but you're not like wasting their time or bugging them. They might say, hey, this is a really interesting topic. I want to talk to you about it, but I'm, I'm, I'm out the door to a, a festival. I'll be back on Tuesday. Talk to you that. You know, like hopefully they are that communicative. Everybody's experience varies. Agents get busy. It's fine. You will never get fired from your agent for asking questions. At the representation phase, like the first step, you don't have a contract to talk about most of the time. So it's hard to ask a question about a thing you don't know about. So you can ask them how they approach contracts, how they do contracts. You can talk about the specific submission ideas they might have. Agents may or may not tell you that because like, I'm not going to give you my whole submission list and then you go sign with another agent. You know, like, I'm just not going to do that. Plus, I don't know. I have to, it takes me a couple of days to do a submission list at the point of you're just signing up. But then you probably don't have anything to ask specifically. Mm-hmm. You can ask if they're a new agent like just starting out, ask how their mentorship works, who is working alongside with them to look at contracts. Has their agency been in business a long time and have boilerplates with everybody? That's why, like you, it is great to sign up with a new agent as long as they have some kind of oversight and mentorship. If it's just some dude with with a website who's never been an agent before, I don't care how many books they've written, like and it's not a specific shade on any specific person, but like right. in general, you got to have a mentor because you don't know what you don't know until until someone tells you the answer, you know? So I still, 17 years later, call Howard and be like, hey, there's this thing. Is this what I, is this the thing I should do? Is that right? And, and then he tells me, yes, Kate, that's for drink that we've talked about that before, you know? <laughs> and it's just good to have a backup. So it's hard to predict whether... Your agent is going to do a good job for you. There's no way to know the future. But I think the most important thing is, can you see yourself talking about business with this person for several years? And if you can't, then don't. Awesome. I love that answer. And wow, I'm going to listen to (laughs) this conversation multiple times to wrap my head around it as well. And you are more than generous with your time. So I so appreciate it. I know how busy you are and you really do it comes through that you love to teach. So just thank you. Thank you. You know, this thanks means a lot me. to me and it means a lot to everyone who's here listening. I'm glad. I Thanks for letting me talk at length about it. I do like it. And I also like the sound of my own voice. So works out great for me too. And I hope everyone goes and signs up for your newsletter as well. Great. Right. Right. Thanks so much. You're welcome.
Thank you so much for coming back for another episode of Lit Match. I was really excited to do this episode. As I mentioned earlier, contracts have always been an area that I've always wanted to learn more about. And I, and I genuinely feel that Kate does an amazing job at taking something, especially if you have no prior knowledge of contractual language, and helping a writer understand the specificities of what's included in a publishing contract and what a writer should be considering when talking with their agent or navigate these waters on what makes a good deal. If you're enjoying Lit Match and you haven't had a chance to rate or review the show, I so appreciate anyone who can take the two minutes to do that. It is the best way to support me and to help me reach more kindred spirits like you who want to learn more about the publishing industry as well as master the craft of writing. And of course, if you have any recommendations for Lit Match, never hesitate to email me at abigailkperry at gmail.com or sign up for my email list on my website, abigailkperry.com, so that you can hear about the latest Lit Match news as well as other writing insights from me directly. If you are in the query trenches, good luck, persevere, be resilient. I know it's extremely difficult to get a literary agent, but it is my honor to support you in this process. And I cannot wait to hear not only when you sign with your literary agent, but celebrate your book when it comes out. 